Good morning. I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. We're almost at the end. First Peter chapter 5. So the greater text is verses 5 to... Pulpit's too small. All right, need a bigger pulpit. All right. So the greater text is going to be First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. This is, this is going to be one whole unit. But uh, there are 11 points in this section, and those of you who know me by now ha- should have absolutely no hope of me ever getting through 11 points in one sermon. So this is going to be a two, possibly a three-pointer, uh, a, th- a three-point sermons, or three-sermon series. So I'm going to read it as a whole. Hey, it's not my fault. Peter, Peter keeps saying all this stuff. And it's not, it's, it's, it's not me, it's him. So uh, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, but we'll be focusing on the first three verses. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 14. Let's read the text. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all who are in Christ. Now, Peter's time is coming to a close and he realizes that he's going to soon have to hang up his pen. And so he's, he's uttering forth some final instructions, some, some final thoughts that he wants to leave with us, some practical takeaways in light of the main argument, which he has stressed time and time and time again, and which he specifically states in 3.17 that, that it, it is good, it is better if God wills it for the Christian to suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. I mean, how many texts have we seen in this book that tell us suffering is sometimes the reality for the Christian? In fact, it's something that we should come to expect. And so in light of that, he's giving the, the entire church some final exhortations. And last week, 
uh, I mean, the, these instructions are so basic, so foundational that, that one pastor calls them the fundamentals. And last week, we looked at the fundamentals for elders. Or no, two weeks ago, right? Three weeks ago. Last time, last time I was here, we looked at the fundamentals for elders. We looked at their fundamental duties. We looked at their fundamental attitudes for their duties. And we looked at the fundamental motive that was to undergird their duties. That their, their fundamental duty was to, pre, was to shepherd, which we saw included uh, preaching, primarily preaching and teaching, as well as exercising oversight. Their fundamental attitude was, was, was to do so eagerly, voluntarily, and humbly. And then the fundamental motive or the reason for them to do so was to gain the approval and reward of the one who owns the flock, right? No elder is the owner of his own flock. He is an under-shepherd. He is a steward of the flock of God. So those were the, those were the fundamentals that Peter urged, he exhorted, that elders re- remember and realize. And with that same uh, unction with that same desire and appeal, he has an uh, exhortation for the rest of the church. And you can see that in the word that he uses that links these two sections, likewise. You see that in verse 5? Likewise. That, that is linking all of the imperatives in verse 5 through 14 to that I exhort you in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now let me just briefly... Uh, list the points. We're only going to get through three. Some of you are saying in your hearts, amen. In verse 5, we will see the attitude of submission. That's the first fundamental attitude for the Christian, submission. And then humility, picking up in verse 5 through to verse 6. Verse 7, trust. Beginning in verse 8, self-control. And then vigilance. Verse 9, he will tell us to have an attitude of fortitude. Verse 10, hope. Verse 11, worship. Verse 12, faithfulness. Verse 13 and 14, love. And then finally, the end of verse 14, the attitude of peace. These 11 attitudes are the fundamental attitudes that we as believers, as Christians, as the flock of God need to have amongst ourselves. So let's look at the first one, the, 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 the primary and the most fundamental attitude for the Christian. That is the attitude of submission. Verse, beginning in verse 5, he says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to... To your elders. As I said, this is a this is a foundational. This is a a most basic, a most primary attitude. The attitude of submission. We looked at this uh, way back in chapter two, I believe. This is uh, it comes from a military expression, which would thrill Carl if he were here. It, it literally means to to line up under, to arrange in formation under. Uh, to, to be under the authority of another, or, or to be under authority. Uh, it's very common in, in military language, in, in military illustrations, but we also see it in the civil world 
too. Uh, in, if you're employed, uh, in many social relationships, one is submitted to another. And essentially, submission is, is where you do what another person says to do. And you do so because of a, of a sense or, or, or an, an acknowledgement or an awareness of their rank, of their position, or of their power or their authority. You're not doing what they are telling you to do because you like them. You're not, <clears throat> you're not doing what they're telling you to do because you have common interests or because you both drive a, 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 a Honda. You do what they say because of an acknowledgement or an awareness of their rank, of their position, of their authority, of their power, of their strength. And because of that awareness, the one in subjection, the one who is submitting, is carrying out the will of the superior. He is, he is following their directions. He is, he is um, accepting their admonition. He is heeding their warning. Now, in, in the ideal structure, in the ideal uh, 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 authority and uh, submission structure, the authority figure, he, he's done his job too, right? And that, these are the things we looked at last time for the, for the elders. Uh, ideally, the authority figure has done his job, and he's done it well. He's, he's not some barking tyrant. You know, he's not belching forth orders and, and demanding results. And it reminds me of the, uh, of the Egyptian slave masters in Exodus 1. Do you remember that? There, there was a quota, there was a daily expectation of how much uh, brick the, the Israelite slaves were to be bringing in. And then Moses comes along and, and asks Pharaoh to release the children of Israel. And Moses, uh, you remember what Pharaoh does? He tells his slave owners, they, they, they think they have the liberty to do this. This take away, take away their materials, take away their mortar and straw. And by the way, still expect the same quota from them. Right. So ideally, in this in this structure, the authority figure isn't like that. He, ideally, the authority figure is fair. He is a leader who's proven his character. He is a leader who has shown himself to provide for those under his authority. He exercises good oversight like good shepherds. Time didn't permit me to really explain or go into uh, too much detail as to what good shepherds looked like. But they were men who needed to be aware of the sheep. They were men who needed to be aware of the needs of the sheep. They needed to be aware. They needed to be on the lookout. They needed to be watching for dangers that would pose themselves to the sheep. They, need, they needed to do their job with fervency. They needed to put, do their job with effort. And they needed to do their job well, lest the sheep suffer. They couldn't be tyrants to the sheep. They had to build such a relationship with the sheep that the sheep would follow when, they, when he would call them by name and simply by hearing their voice, they would follow. If they were tyrannical, if they were unfair, that relationship would not be built and the sheep would not comply. They could not be tyrants, nor could shepherds be mere hirelings and scatter at the first sign of a, of a threat. They needed to be faithful stewards of the flock. They needed to act as those who would give an account to the flock owner. 
So, I mean, that, that's the ideal, right? I mean, that, 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 that's what your authority figure in, in your line of work hopefully is doing. Hopefully that's what elders are doing. But the reality is, is that the ideal doesn't always happen, right? I mean, you know, don't, don't let this get out, but sometimes elders and pastors aren't perfect. I know, shock, right? Sometimes elders are just a smidge less than perfect. But also, the other side of that coin is sometimes some in the flock have unrealistic expectations of elders. Sometimes sheep can have selfish expectations from, the, from their pastor or from the church or from other sheep. And when those expectations aren't met, or maybe when they're not met fast enough, they can become disappointed. Disappointment leads to bitterness and resentment and worse. And Peter anticipates that. And he, he, he anticipates this more among the young men in the church, that, that this is an, uh, a threat, this is a danger more so from the young men in the church. I mean, after all, men are, are designed by God to be leaders. We are crafted to have this desire to, to grow things and to make things and to fashion things and craft things. And we want to we see things grow. We want to th- build stuff, and we want that stuff to excel. And we want that stuff to be big, and we want it to be loud. That's how we like it. America. And we want to use, we, we, we are more than willing, when, 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 when the, uh, the object of our passion is on the line, we use our blood and sweat and tears and we use energy and we are willing to lose sleep for that which we have a passion for. We want to see our passions planted. We want to see them take root. We want to see them bud and we want to see them bear fruit. Now, a good desire in that kind of a man can easily become a zeal to advance his own agendas, his ambitions, his goals, and his dreams. And that man can become quite frustrated when they aren't coming to fruition on his timeline. When, when he's not at the helm and somebody else is in charge. When he knows a better way, when he knows a more efficient way, when he knows a more effective way. Way when he can get it done in half the time with half the resources and look better doing it. And that man has the potential to become aggressive and headstrong. And these tendencies, this, this, this way that we are built, coupled with a desire to lead in the church, can become very dangerous grounds, especially if said man is gifted, especially if, if he is gifted. Many, the truth is, is that many talented, many gifted young men who had the potential to be greatly used by God have utterly castrated and neutered that said potential because of an unwillingness and an unyielding to submit in the church instead of of being humble, instead of submitting, they become impatient and unruly and ultimately divisive. And they sadly work against the very thing that they had a desire to build. Peter singles them out. He says, 
subject yourself, you young men, subject yourself to your elders. So I ask you young men, does that mean that you cannot disagree with, with me or with Carl? Can you, are you not allowed to have a different opinion? Are you not allowed to see things any other way other than we do? Does it mean that you can't come to a different conclusion? Does it mean that your opinion, your perspective isn't valued or or that your contribution isn't valued? Does that mean that we are never going to do anything with you? Now, let let me me open the floor. Does Does it mean any of those things? No. Thank you. What does it mean? It What this does mean is that when it comes to the direction of the church, when it comes to the doctrine that the elders of the church are charged to teach and uphold, when it comes to the counsel that we give you, provided that it's biblical and provided that it's not our own subjective bias, we ask you and we implore you. Watch it. Let me put the weight on Peter. Peter implores you, be subject to your Elders, line up under us when it comes to the hard decisions, when it comes to the ruling of church affairs, and for the sake of order and for the sake of our sanity, be subject to your elders. If you want Project X to, to, to be, be developed and to, to grow. And the elders have thought this out. If you've made a proposal, if you have a vision for something you want to see done, and you've brought it to the elders, and they've thought it over, they've prayed over it, and they ultimately conclude it's not best for the church, it's perhaps an, unused, it's a, perhaps an unwise use of resources, or perhaps we have significant reservations. We would implore you to trust our judgment because the scripture says we will be accountable to Christ for any mishandling of his sheep the scripture tells us that the elders will be accountable to the owner of the flock for any mishandling or any neglectful shepherding or oversight of his beloved flock So then another question that comes up, are are young men the only ones who need to be subject to their elders? Are are the older men, you know, those of us with some white and and, and, uh, or maybe nothing else up here? You notice my hairline is tactically retreating. Are are, are the older men and and women, I I guess women of all ages are just scot-free off the hook. They don't need to worry about subjection, right? Is, Is it only young men that have to do this? No, thank you. Remember... Remember what Peter has already said uh, back up in verse 2. Elders, concerning the entire flock, the whole flock, elders are to shepherd and they are to exercise oversight. Both of those terms imply authority. Both of those positions imply that they have authority. And furthermore, addressing the, the attitude that they're to lead the church, Peter says, don't lord your authority over them. And that implies they have, lord, they have authority that could potentially be lorded. So elders do have authority over the entirety of the flock. Now, does, does, does Scripture anywhere else say this? Yes, it does, voice in my head. First Corinthians 16 
15 to 16, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, that you also be in subjection to such men. He's referring to the house of Stephanus. These are fellows that most likely helped Paul establish the church in Corinth. He says, Be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors of the ministry. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, he says, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. who I guess we could say Bob, Bob wrote this, right, Daniel? Bob says, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to be there for equip. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, this is important. Let them do this. Let them do what? Keep watch. With joy and not with grief. Why? For this would be unprofitable for you. Now, what happens if some sheep persist in grieving the shepherds? Well, then shepherding becomes unprofitable for the, plot, for the flock. And this happens as shepherds become distracted. They can become discouraged. They can fall into despair. All of that hinders and hampers and compromises the effectiveness of ministry. doesn't mean it always will happen, but it, it does add, it, it increases the propensity for that. We've all, we've all worked with people who have the spiritual gift of not just contrib- not merely lacking contribution to progress, but that their spiritual gift is actually getting in the way of progress. We've, all, we've, all, we, we've been around those people. It, you would wish they weren't there. You, w- you would wish they were absent rather than present because being present, they make it harder than if they weren't there at all. A neglecting... To have this attitude will inevitably lead to disappointment. It will lead to bitterness. It will lead to resentment, which causes more problems and divisions and arguing and bickering. It will breed resentment. And so Peter says, he exhorts you, all of you, but especially you young bucks. I'm looking at you, Dan. Submit yourselves. Be subject to your elders. A primary attitude for Christians. The second attitude is the attitude of humility. Humility. He picks this up in the middle of verse 5, going into verse 6. Clothe and all of you. So in case anyone is feeling left out, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. He says, all of you, each one of you, you and you and you and you and so forth. All of you, clothe yourselves 
with humility. This is like the, the muumuu that can fit everybody. Hey, you, you ever gone shopping and there are, those, there are those clothes that, you know, you can look at and you can tell, I, I ain't never fitting in that. And then there are the things that can, there's so much, it's like pure elastic. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what walk of life you are, it'll fit you. Well, th- th- this is, the humility is the, is the uh, attitude that's like the mumu. It fits everybody. And so he says, each one of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. And this, is, this attitude is in the same vein as submission, but it goes further because it addresses the inclination of the heart instead of just the inclination of the attitude or, or the tendency of the heart instead of just the tendency of the attitude. And you may ask, well, what does that mean? Well, submission... Submission obeys orders of the superior because it recognizes the power, the rank, the authority, the position of that authority and, and, and is motivated uh, perhaps by fear or by intimidation or, or reward. You are simply obeying and following through because the other person is higher than you and you are lower than them. But the truth is, is a proud heart can still do that, can't it, can it not? Can a proud heart still submit in action? Yes, it can. A strong will, an unbroken ego can still see the advantage of an external compliance because, extern- because compliance will be rewarded. A proud heart can submit when it's being watched. A proud heart understands the advantage of not rocking the boat and not biting the hand that feeds you. A proud heart sees the value of, of structure and of the pecking order, and it sees the value and the advantage of building a reputation of what would appear to be faithfulness because, hey, someday you may need to call in a favor from those who are in charge. Pride can appear hum, humble. Pride can still submit, but under pretense, is what I'm trying to say. A proud heart can give a surface-level conduct of submission, but for the wrong reason, whereas humility touches on that very reason which marks it so differently. Humility touches on the truth that a changed heart desires to please God because where submission can submit because someone is looking, because of a reward, because of potential recognition, humility acts even when no one is looking. Humility acts even when there is no reward, and humility acts for no compensation or recognition. A rebel can be forced to submit. A rebel can be coerced to submit, but only a changed heart can be humble. And a friend of mine put it like this, you can submit without being humble, but you cannot be humble without submitting. Do you see how humility goes deeper? It gets to the heart of the issue. Well, what, what is humility in its basic meaning? It's, it's thinking lowly. It's thinking lowly, not, not just of, not of somebody else. That's, that's actually pride. It's thinking lowly of one's self. Thinking lowly of the self. And it can be used passively, 
in the sense of, of being humbled. You can be humbled because you're in pain. You can be humbled from your suffering, from depression, from shame. And in that sense, it's called, it, it, it can be translated humiliation. We're, we're familiar with how that word is used. Certain circumstances can be humiliating. But that's not absolutely necessary. One can be actively humble and one can actively think lowly about themselves but still be content. One can be humble and think lowly about oneself and still be happy and have joy and have contentedness and experience satisfaction. And what's needed for this to happen, what's needed to have a heart, an attitude of humility is to have an absence of arrogance. It is to have an absence of the exaltation of the self, to have an absence of aggrandizement, of, of puffing oneself up. It is to be modest and discreet where one could be flamboyant and boisterous. It is to be quiet and mild and not loud and raucous. It is to endure being wronged instead of demanding back your pound of flesh. Where pride demands, humility gives. Where pride exacts vengeance and seeks to see others brought down, humility forgives and seeks to see others raised up. Pride entertains excess, but humility seeks and exercises self-control. Pride seeks the needs of self. Humility seeks the needs of others. And so pride serves self. Humility serves others. So Peter says, think lowly of yourselves. Clothe yourselves with that attitude. This what is remarkable is that this attitude, this virtue, was never, ever, ever seen in a positive light in the, in the ancient world. In ancient culture, in ancient literature, it is never described positively. The only reason that humility ha- has, has ever been thought to be anything good and noble and virtuous is because of what Christianity has done with it. Because Christians have exemplified it. It has long been thought in, in extra-biblical literature and extra-biblical cultures, it has long been thought as an undesirable quality because it befits slaves. Humility and thinking lowly of oneself is a, has been thought of a quality befitting slaves. It's only befitting those who are expected to do, who, are o- who their only value in life is to do the most lowly, the most menial, the most degrading and inhumane tasks possible. It is a quality, it, is, it has long been thought to be a quality and attitude that will not bring you joy it will not bring you profit it will not bring you satisfaction it will not bring you happiness it will not garner for you respect and it will not produce or garner strength it has long been thought to be a sign of weakness a sign of inferiority and a sign of one's coward cowardice 
And as such, it was only tolerated in slaves. If a, if a father were to see his son exhibiting humility in the ancient world, he would have been utterly ashamed. And then come, along comes Pastor Peter and says, hey, take that attitude which was befitting only of the lowly slaves. Y'all close yourselves with that. Y'all put that garment on. That word he says, he uses to clothe yourselves, it, it literally, and this is a little bit of a pun, it's a, it's a little bit of a play on words, it literally means to put on or, or to adorn or to attach something with a bow or a knot, such as an apron. And I, I clearly believe that he has in mind the slave's apron. And so he's telling you to have the attitude of the slave and to demonstrate that by, by clothing yourself, by tying it on as if you were actually putting on a slave's garment. He says, put on the slave's apron. He's, and he says to do this willingly. Clothe yourselves. Not clothe one another. Not go around and humble one another. You humble yourself. This needs to be a willing, sincere, genuine response. Put it on yourself. Put yourself into service. So what, what does this look like? What, what does this mean for us? Well, it means not thinking so highly that, that you are not able to serve one another. It means that you're not thinking so highly of, of yourself that you are unwilling, that you are unable to stoop down and to serve one another. You're not thinking so highly of yourself that you are unwilling to make a sacrifice for somebody else. And it means thinking lowly enough that you will stoop down, that you will do whatever is necessary to, to serve and to show love for another, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's humiliating or humbling, even if it's something that your flesh says, that's beneath you, Aaron, don't do that. He can take care of himself. I do have to retract one thing. I said no ancient literature portrayed humility positively, and I have to retract that because there is one body of ancient literature which does speak of it positively. Can you imagine what that is? The Bible. <coughs> God's Word definitely, undeniably portrays humility as a positive thing because the God of the Bible possesses himself possesses humility and he he possesses it in abundance i mean just think about this think about the divine humility in creation the infinite thrice holy god creates man breathing living breathing lump and walking lumps of dust and he makes them in his image he makes them to be to bear his likeness and he has fellowship with them and those lumps of dust Sin against that holy God. They rebel. They, they, they take his name and throw it in the dirt. And after, after saying that they would die for sin, he clothes them and forgives them their sin. Think about the humility of God in time and time again in the covenants that he enters in with man. The 
infinitely holy, transcendent, lofty God coming down and showing mercy and grace to sinners. Think about divine humility in being good to sinners who time and time and time again neglect to return the favor. So, yes, the God of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, Christopher Hitchens, I'm sorry, Richard Dawkins, who's, who's, the, who's the, the scientist fellow who passed away this week? Stephen Hawking's. I'm sorry, Mr. Hawking's, but the God of the Old Testament is not some angry, fire and brimstone ogre who only delights in seeing men killed. He's not bloodthirsty. He is actually quite humble. I think I can think of no better passage which illustrates the humility of God than what Peter says in Philippians 2. If you have your well you should have your Bible. Turn to Philippians 2. If you don't, I'll read it. And you say, well, he's talking about Christ. Well, yes, Christ is God. Peter, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, that's the same word, thinking lowly, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Kind of sounds like the same thing P- Peter is saying here. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here we go. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The infinitely holy God who enjoyed infinite glory and infinite fellowship between the Godhead willingly robed himself in flesh, and came in the form of a slave and died on a cross. Do you see that downward trajectory of humiliation, of humbling that Christ put upon himself? So yes, the God of the Bible. He's not just the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament as well. The God of the Bible is a humble God. And that's the attitude we are to have. Well, who are we to be humble to? Clothe yourselves with humility toward who? Back in 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward who? One another. One another. Some here at SVBC may need to ask themselves, who can they be serving? Who, for whom can we be stooping lower for? Who, for whom can we be showing more compassion? For whom can we show more patience? For whom can we show more charity? For whom can we show more time? Who who can we invest more of our time in? Who do we need to be forgiving more? Who do we need to be praying for more who do we need to be admonishing more who can we be encouraging more and investing ourselves in and seeking to be built up more 
here's one that, that will step on our toes. For whom in, in our body can we be more thankful for? Do we, do we ever take our relationships for granted? Sometimes. All these come easier when we are draped in humility, when we are clothed with humility. And God loves it when we are humbled because then we are moldable, we are pliable, we are teachable. And to, to, to reinforce that, Peter quotes from Proverbs 3.34. If you, if you, have, a, if you have a NASB, uh, the text should look a little, it should look blocky. Does yours look blocky? Does it look all caps? That's the NASB's way of telling you that the New Testament writer is quoting something in the Old Testament. If you have a different version, then you may have a little footnote or, or something in the margin. But that is a... That is a quote of Proverbs 3.34. Why should we do this? Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So why be humble? Because you might be found opposing and standing against God. Pride is a burr in God's saddle, but he loves Humility. Elsewhere, he says in Psalm 25, 9, that he leads the humble in justice. Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Isaiah 66, 2, but to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. I think God likes humility just a little bit, don't you? He loves the humble but opposes the proud. There, practical application time. Look at verse 6. Therefore, having just established that God prefers one and somewhat dislikes the other, Peter says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, wh- why does he bring up this this image of the hand? Well, the hand was a was a sign or a symbol uh, of, of one's power, of one's might, and of one's authority. And beginning in Exodus, uh, really, it's all over the Old Testament. But here's an example of how it's used in Exodus 3:20, where where God is commissioning Moses. He tells Moses, "I will stretch my hand, and I will strike Egypt with with wonders." And you all know what happened to Egypt. That, 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 the way that that's used, it is far too numerous to, to, to quote anymore. Uh, elsewhere, so, so that, that's the way that God's hand is used in power and strength and judgment. But it's also used for one's, for one's benefit. In Numbers 11.23, where he, where he has told Moses that, that he is going to provide food, and meat for the two to three million Israelites who are out in the desert. And Moses says, we are so many. Where are we going to find this food? And God asks rhetorically, is the Lord's arm or is the Lord's hand, has it been shortened? One translation, the NASB actually translated, has the Lord's power been limited? That's the idea. 
So his hand is powerful and mighty to bring judgment, but also to bring provision. And Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. R.C. Sproul says that that, in itself, that simple phrase, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, is a microcosm of the entire Christian life. And I heard that and I went, wow. And then I said, what's a microcosm? Well, in a nutshell, a microcosm means in a in a it means it means the same thing that when we say in a nutshell, it, it, it's 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 the big picture in this. It, it, it's a world of uh, of of stuff, but bite size. And what this means is that submitting to God and acknowledging Him as God, acknowledging His lordship, acknowledging his eternal and his everlasting authority to require whatever of us is pleasing to him. That is a microcosm. That is the Christian life in a nutshell, says R.C. Sproul. And so I have to ask you, does the hand of God, does it terrify you or does it comfort you? In Psalm 139, verse 5, we looked at this last year. David says, and this is, this is uh, perhaps the best psalm which I think illustrates God's personal, close, intimate knowledge of men. 139, verse 5, he says, You have enclosed me behind and before, behind and before you know, using image of, of, of being surrounded by God's armies, by his presence and power. And you have laid your hand upon me. The idea is that David is this, is this little bug that could be squashed by God's might. And God has taken his hand and he's, he's, he's taken David captive. That's the idea. That hand was a terror to God's enemies. It was a terror to Pharaoh. And it is a terror even now to the proud today. And yet that same hand holds you. That hand which has uprooted nations, that hand which has removed tyrants and has destroyed the works of the devil, that hand now holds you. And God has promised that he will not let you go. He will not drop you. He will not mishandle you in your suffering. We've seen that thus far in First Peter, haven't we? He upholds you. And look how, he, look how Peter finishes verse 6. He promises to exalt you at the proper time. Isn't that good? He holds you and he has promised to exalt you at the proper time. What's the, when's the proper time? Is it, sure love that proper time to be in five minutes. Now, the proper time is the time when God sees fit. That requires faith, doesn't it? It's when God says it's a good time. Doesn't that build assurance? Doesn't this text build in the believer confidence? Doesn't that make suffering just a little more bearable? To know that there in your suffering that there is intent in you being called to suffer and God leading you through that valley of shadow of death 
that there is an intent. There is a purpose to you being there. There is a design to your suffering. And it's good to know that there's also a limit to your suffering. We won't suffer forever. If he has granted you to suffer, then faith requires us to see that rebelling against the purpose of the suffering, fighting against that, idolizing the escape from our suffering, trying to do whatever we can to alleviate our suffering, is ultimately kicking against God's goads, to use a biblical phrase, and works against the purposes of the trial. And you're essentially shooting yourself in the foot. You're working against the very purpose that God has in mind by putting you in that trial in the first place when all you want to do is get out and you're willing to do anything to alleviate it. If we fail to count the trial as a joy, if we end up reckoning God as being unkind or unfair in his provision to us, then we forget the sweet grace of his exaltation that he promises to give you and to me at the end of the trial when the trial has served its purpose. Isn't that hard to do? Oh, that that can be so hard to do. But Aaron, won't, won't, won't just putting up with this, won't, won't this just lead to, to misery? Won't this lead to frustration? Isn't that going to make life harder for me? I mean, I have problems I need to deal with, Aaron. What about my problems? What about my needs? What about my anxiety? Well, I'm glad you asked that because Peter tells us what to do with your anxieties. Look at verse 7. What action accompanies us submitting and being humble? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This, I see these three attitudes and they all go together. David was a man who, who had plenty of anxiety in his life. In Psalm 55, he talks about the betrayal by a close friend. If you want to look that up later, look at verses 12 to 14 in Psalm 55. David had enemies outside of the camp for, for most of his life, but what really got to him was when he had enemies inside of his camp. Enemies amongst allies, enemies amongst family, enemies amongst friends. Enemies who sold him out, who worked against him, who cursed him, who spit on him. He's a man who was definitely acquainted with grief and trouble and anxiety. And he was also, I believe, acquainted with the reminder and the consequences of his failures. So what do we do with our anxieties? Do we consult dr phil do we do we turn on oprah do we i know we ask the internet that'll tell that'll tell me what to do oh uh, you know it's quite popular now we play the victim and we show how how uh this really wasn't our fault it's the it's it's the fault of mom and dad or of my culture no 
How about this? I think this is probably the dumbest thing I ever heard. Pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. If I try to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I just pull myself down. So I took physics in, class, in, in high school. I, anyway. Peter says to cast all our anxieties on him. That, that word cast, this has the idea of, of throwing something over something else or, or, or over someone else. It has the idea of, of throwing a fishing net out over a school of fish or, or even the idea of throwing a, a blanket over a large animal or, or person. Large people get cold too, I guess. But you, you, are, you are throwing something. You are putting effort and exertion into throwing it, particularly with, with the fishing nets. Nets would, be, would have little stones or weights uh, going around the lining of the net so that when you, when you throw it out, the weight would sink down and then it would, it would uh, encapsulate the school of fish in the sea. And so the fishermen, you know, you couldn't have this mild, meek little, little guy, you know, that probably would sound like this and you wouldn't want to take him out to throw the net because he would just, oh, that's not going to get you fished. You have to throw it. You have to throw, you have to cast the net out in the same way, cast your cares, cast your anxieties on him. And don't be holding on to it when you cast it. It hinders the, the whole intent of casting it away from you. When you take your cares and your anxieties to God, you let go of them and trust he will take care of them. Amen. Hebrews 4.16 let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Cast your anxieties to him. The God of the Bible is strong enough and wise enough and powerful enough and he loves you enough to take care of you. Cast all your anxiety upon him. Beloved, many people pray. Many people go to church and they pray and then they leave doubting. And I ask you, in, 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 in the same vocabulary as, as Numbers 11, how big do you think God's hands are? Are his hands big enough to deal with your problems? Is God able to deal with the things that keep you up at night, or is he not? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Beloved, if you're in Christ, if you are one of his sheep, if you have heard his voice, if you follow him, if you trust and believe in him, if, if you are redeemed and you are washed by the blood of Calvary, if you have a new heart that loves him and his church, then rest assured you are his child and God loves his children and he has promised to take care of them. Amen? Let's stop there for now. Lord Jesus.
What a marvelous section of your holy word where we are reminded to think lowly of yourself and to see that that's okay because you are good and have promised to take care of us. Lord, this can be a challenging thing, especially when we have to constantly batten down our own pride. Help us to do that. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to walk in assurance and faith, knowing that you have promised to take care of us. You have promised to not allow any of our trials to overtake us. And you only call us to walk where you yourself have walked first. Help us to walk like you did. Amen.